0: Well, welcome to Nets course number two, uh, Disciples of the Lord Jesus. This is session 10, and we're going to be looking at the power of the cross tonight. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 14, please, and beginning in uh, verse 26, we're going to look at what Jesus said about discipleship. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple." And whoever does not bear his cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish." Speaking of our lives in Christ we should desire not only to receive salvation and to receive our eternal life by the holy spirit but that we should endeavor to plan our lives in such a way that we can live for jesus and that it's not a emotion and a decision that was one time we made but a daily decision and a daily process continually growing up in all things continually being perfected in christ and as Jesus is saying here, there is a cost, and we need to consider that cost. I believe probably one of the main things that keeps us from being committed to the Christian walk today is if we do not consider the cost of discipleship. If we consider it's a one-way relationship that we receive, we receive, we receive, but that there's no cost to it from us, then it really makes the blessings even Uh, Seem more minor than they really are because when we give, we're able to receive so much more. Sacrifice many times opens the door to receive greater things. Now we know scripturally that obedience is better than sacrifice. So sacrifice alone can just be a religious spirit, it can be done because of the fear of man. There can be many sources to sacrifice that are not of God. But obedience many times will bring us to a place of bearing a cross, of carrying a burden, especially on behalf of someone else. Of course, Jesus being our greatest example. Thankfully, none of us are called to bear the same cross that He bore. He paid the price once, only He could pay the price, and as we've seen, now that He has paid the price, there is no other sacrifice that can take the place of what He has accomplished. Yet. There is a, a cross to be born. There is a, a burden to be carried for discipleship. If we want to grow up in things of the Lord, if we want to complete the Great Commission, which is to disciple the nations and teach them to observe and obey everything He said, we need to count the cost of discipleship. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul is exhorting his spiritual son, Timothy, And he says, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We can't, as disciples, be so concerned about what others may or may not be called to do. We have to understand our own call. And Timothy's call was to endure hardship on behalf of others, just like Paul was. As an example, Paul endured hardship to bring the gospel to others. And he expected Timothy to carry on that call as a soldier. Verse 4, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier." And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Again, you see obedience. We have to know what the rules are, or how can we fulfill them. But even once knowing them, we need to have a spirit of obedience and fortitude, endurance, to stay on course, so we can be rewarded. The hardworking farmer must be first To partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not changed. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. And if we deny Him, He will deny us. There's a cost to standing up to be counted. There's a cost to enlisting in the army. As you see, the Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy while he was in prison, in chains, literally, for the gospel. And yet he thought it was worthwhile. We have died with him, so therefore we're going to live with him. It's an assured thing. It's a promise. The sacrifice has been made. The blood has been shed. However, what form our eternal life will take is still in the balance we are still as fellow laborers with the Lord, choosing what form and fashion we shall live with Him in eternity, and of what we will have to give. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. It's a choice we have to make. Are you willing to endure? Are you willing to pay the price for endurance? Are you willing to do the things that need to be done in order to be an overcomer? Let's look at the context here in luke as we began to look at what jesus was saying about discipleship let's look in uh, luke 18 jesus had just spoken to the rich young ruler and said that he should give up all his riches give him to give it to the poor and follow him if he wanted to be perfect and when jesus saw that he walked away he became very sorrowful and said how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of god For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. What Jesus was saying here through an Orientalism was basically the same thing that the Apostle Paul was saying to Timothy. Not to be entangled with the things of this life. Don't be weighed down. You can't run the race if you have all the extras on. And those days when they had their games, they would run naked so that they didn't have any extra encumbrances. Even their feet, they would take pumice stones and rub the soles of their feet in order to callous them so that they could even run without sandals or without shoes on, but yet at the same time have thick soles on their feet to not to be encumbered at all with extraneous clothing even. And so when Jesus was speaking about how to enter into the kingdom of God, He said it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now they understood what He was saying. They also understood it was difficult what He was explaining, but not impossible. The eye of the needle was speaking about the night gate that was in the door of the larger gate to the city. Larger gates into the city would be quite large and big enough for traffic to go in and out throughout the day, but at night those gates would be closed. And a smaller door was in that gate, which could be opened by the watchman, and an individual could go through, but they'd have to duck down to fit in. Now for a camel to go through that would be very difficult, because camels were beasts of burden, and they would be loaded with lots of cargo, and that cargo would be then had to be balanced across their backs and across their hump, and there would be cargo on both sides needing to be balanced, but it made the way quite wide. Plus, a camel by itself is quite tall, taller than a man. So when Jesus said, a camel to go through the eye of the needle, for the camel to go through that night gate, that camel would have to be unburdened. In other words, all the affairs of this life that were tied on to that camel, would have to be taken off of him. And then that camel would have to get down on his knees in order to go through that door, in order to fit through that door. So what Jesus was saying, just as a camel would have to be unencumbered with the affairs of this world, with material things, and he would have to humble himself, that's the same way we can enter the kingdom of heaven. To enter the kingdom of God, we must... Get rid of the encumbrances of this world, and we must humble ourselves in the sight of God. It's impossible with men, but God can help us, is what Jesus is saying. He can help us get rid of the things of this life that so many times encumber us. And He can help us to be humble so that we can enter into the things of God. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, there is a yoke. There is a burden. When we try to bear it on our own, it's almost impossible. However, if we ask for help, See, with us, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So to come to him, be humble, be gentle, allow him to be a fellow laborer with us, a yoke fellow with us, then the burden is light and the yoke is easy. And there's rest for our souls. Matthew 10, 38, he said, Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. That's the word for soul. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup, Of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. He's talking about ministries and receiving ministries. He's talking about character and receiving those that have the character of Christ. And he's talking about those that have discipled themselves to him and receiving them. So the blessings that come from receiving those who have. Made a choice to pay the price, to bear their cross, to follow after him. Then there's blessings that even come through their lives. When we do that, there are blessings that come from our lives. When we have committed ourselves to the Lord, counted the cost, and are beginning to bear our burden, but understanding that Jesus is bearing it with us, those that receive us begin to receive a blessing. It comes by grace. It's something that we personally could not give, but God gives on our behalf because they're receiving the one that sent us. 1 Corinthians 1.16, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Remember, we're in a process to those of us that are being saved. Now, we have salvation in that we have our eternal life, but we're in the process. Our souls are being converted. Our souls are being saved. And we look forward to the hope of our salvation of our new bodies and the time when there won't be a struggle when it will be total peace. And yet, the cross is the power of God to us. Remember when he was on Mars Hill in Athens and he preached. They wanted to hear what he had to say because he was preaching about the unknown God and they hadn't heard about him yet. So they thought, well, let's go hear what this man will say. And when he got to the part about the resurrection of the dead, they thought he was mad. Some believed, though. But see, with the cross, we come to the sufferings and the, sacrifice, but we can go to the glory. But if we won't come to the foot of the cross, we have no access to the glory. However, if there was no resurrection, then the cross is just an ending point, not a beginning point. But for those of us that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, the cross is the power of God. What about the cross that Jesus carried? In Matthew twenty-six thirty-eight? Then Jesus said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And He asked them to stay and watch with Him while He went and prayed, while He was in the garden under such pressure. The word that He used for death there, thananatos, which is used for a death as a result of the penalty for sin. For a criminal paying the price, He was that pressured. In Philippians 2.7, It says, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus was willing to be obedient and even to lay down his life on the cross, he humbled himself to the extreme. So God was able to exalt him to the extreme. And we have available to us the great mystery in that we can be joint heirs. It's available, it's possible that we can be joint heirs with Christ. None of us could ever be exalted higher than the Lord Jesus. Even Lucifer intended to try to exalt himself above the throne of God. It didn't work for him. (laughs) But amazingly, through the grace of God, by the love of the Father, it's possible for us to come into unity with the Son and be exalted as high as the Son by being a joint heir. If we'll bear our cross we will be exalted in due time obedience is better than sacrifice but often obedience will lead us to sacrifice when we're obedient to endure more authority is delegated to us and we are exalted in due time philippians 3:13 brothers i do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it but one thing i do forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained." Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now these are many that have stood for the Lord in the past, but now are enemies. They're not lukewarm, they're enemies. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Just the opposite of what we're seeing when it is to carry our cross, what it is to be a good soldier, to bear the burden for others, to carry our cross along with the Lord Jesus, to have a yoke and a burden that He is bound to, but rather to turn back and to live for the things of this world, makes us an enemy of the cross of Christ. It didn't mean that these men had necessarily converted to another religion. They simply had chosen to live for this life. I wonder if we used that same standard today in the church, how many would we really count as soldiers for the Lord and how many would be counted as enemies of the cross? But I think we can judge for ourselves. If we judge our own selves, we won't be judged with the world. If we'll go to the Lord, if we'll count the cost then we'll be assured of a reward, and we'll be assured of an inheritance and joint heirship. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, discipleship is the process of learning to be citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We have to have our eyes set on things above. Daily, we have to put our eyes back on things above. Daily, We have to remind ourselves that we're in this world, but we're not of this world. And that what is at stake has eternal consequences. And if we daily lose our lives, in other words, we exchange our soul for the will of God. If we'll daily do that, if we'll daily pick up our cross and follow after Him, He'll teach us how to be citizens in His kingdom. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in 14 by which he put to death their hostility. It's only by coming to the cross that we can be reconciled to God. And that's a daily process. By coming to the cross daily, remembering our commitment, and remembering his sacrifice, and laying everything down, setting our will aside, exchanging ours for his, we're continually reconciled to God. He'll give us that word of reconciliation which is promised to us. In Romans 5, beginning in verse 1, "...therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance." Perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? He's saying, you already saw the Lord lay down His life and shed His blood for us while we were yet sinners. And yet somehow, once we become Christians, evidently the accuser of the brethren is able to come in. At times, And convince us that now that we've been saved, if we sin or if we just really blow it once too many times, there'll be no way for us to get back. And we can only look forward to the lake of fire because we've sinned so bad. And yet we forget it was while we were yet sinners that he died for us. Now that we have the spirit of God, isn't he willing to save us now? The apostle says he is. The apostle says he already died while we were yet sinners, and now that we've received him, he's certainly willing to stick with us. You know, one thing that seems to make God more upset than just about anything is when you deny his ability to accomplish something because you think you don't have the ability. When God came to Moses and said he was going to send him down to Egypt, Moses said, you can't because I don't have the abilities. And it really upset God because God didn't call him because of his abilities. He probably called him because of his inabilities. What God really needs from us is not our abilities, but our availabilities. Will we be there? Will we say, here am I, send me? The more he does, the less we do, the more glory he gets. The fewer abilities sometimes that we have. Paul said he gloried in his own weaknesses. He had to learn to die to himself, certainly God will utilize our abilities, but not if we put them ahead of his abilities in us. And when we say to God, well, yes, you were able to save me once, but now I don't know that you could do that now daily. I have the Holy Spirit, or maybe we're convinced we had the Holy Spirit. Maybe the the enemy has lied to us, and we've come to that point where we feel that the Father would never let us come back And yet we know that even when Peter said to Jesus, depart from me, Jesus never would depart from him. And that was before he had the Holy Spirit. We know the parable of the forgiving father, that he had two sons, and yet both of them had problems, and yet he still received both of them. When we say that God can't help us, for whatever reason, whatever you think you may have done, I'm not saying there aren't consequences, just like there were consequences to the prodigal son. He squandered his inheritance, and yet he was still a son. And when we say to God, well, I guess I've really done it so bad this time that you can't help me, we really are stepping outside of God's grace. We are really saying that he can't complete what he began, which would be a lie. He is able to complete what he began, and he is able to perform it in us. There's nothing that could stop him as long as we'll allow him. He has just made the choice not to overstep our freedom of will. It's up to us to persevere because that will build character. You see, I'm not justifying sin. Sin many times comes because we lack character. The reason we lack character is because we lack perseverance. We're not willing to pay the price to bear the cross. If we will pay the price, the character of Christ will build in us. If we'll grow in that character... The honor, if we're an honorable person, we will have hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. If we have hope, we'll have faith. With faith, it's possible to please God. By faith, we receive the grace wherein we can stand. See, Jesus is our peace. He has brought us to a place through the Holy Spirit that we have confidence of eternal life. If we have any other Jesus being preached, it's another Jesus, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.4. Now in the Old Testament, the cross of Jesus Christ was prophesied many times through types and shadows. And type comes from the Greek word tupos, is a figure of speech. I think it's very worth understanding and knowing what a type is. So I'd like to look at the types as a figure of speech. A type is a print or a mark, a figure, a form, a pattern, or an example. It comes from the Greek word tupos, which means a blow. In other words, when we have a typewriter, those letters and numbers are called type. And when you hit the button, they go forward and they cause a blow on a ribbon And then that ribbon leaves a mark on the paper. The same would be with type setting, for instance, where you would put type and set it, uh, an imprint into wood or steel or plastic. There's the type and there's the anti-type. The type is what makes the imprint, but the imprint is what we're looking for, the final product. When uh, Thomas said, I won't believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead till I see the The print of the nails in his hands, that was the word tupos. He said, I want to see the marks that were made by those nails that went in his hand and the marks where the spear went in his side. We often speak in light of types and shadows. So literally, it's the type and the antitype. The type and the shadow is the antitype. So prophetically, we can see much prophecy of what was spoken and what's going to be explained in the New Testament We can see from the Old Testament by looking there many times things that were hidden before, that were in shadows before can now be seen clearly. And as we understand, figures of speech are given for us as the Holy Spirit's markings as to what He wants to show as important. In Exodus chapter 12 verse 22, this is the instructions that were given by God through Moses for preparing for the Passover so that the angel of death would pass over the houses of the Israelites and that the firstborn in every household would be protected. And so they were given instructions on how to prepare the lamb had to be without spot and without blemish. His bones couldn't be broken all as a type of the lamb that would come, the lamb of God. But as a mark over each house, And the door of each house. And remember, Jesus said he was the door. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And this, by marking the door on the top and the two sides with the blood, left the symbol of the cross. Even today, many people use the symbol of the three as a symbol of the cross and completion. And it says that, The Lord would see the blood, and He'll pass over. But, you know, God knew already who was of Israel and who wasn't. He didn't need to see blood in order to know that. Just like today, He died for all. Jesus shed His blood for all. What He needs to see, however, is those who will receive His forgiveness. He knew who was of Israel in those days, but He needed to see who was going to take action in faith to receive the protection. So just as today, He wants all men to be saved and come unto a knowledge of the truth, yet it's only possible for Him to save those that reach out. Only those that say, I need help, can you help me in Jesus' name, that He can help. Those that will take the cross and receive it will receive the salvation that comes with the cross. We see again in the laying out of the camp of Israel, As they left Egypt and they went into the wilderness, God gave them even instructions on how to camp and which tribes should be in which place. This is all contained in Numbers chapter 2, verse 1 through 33. They couldn't see it at the time, but now looking back and looking at the numbers of the tribes and how many thousands there were in each tribe, what we saw was that the Lord was requiring that the camp of Israel be laid out in the shape of a cross facing east to receive the morning star and the rising of the morning sun each day. And in the center of that cross would be the tabernacle. And God spoke to Moses in Exodus 25, verse 8, and he said, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings just so you shall make it. The pattern, the type, he was going to show them a type. They had to build it that way. They may not have ever understood why, but now looking back, we can see it's a type of the cross. And he said, if you'll make me the sanctuary and you'll do it the way I say, I will dwell among you. Today, when the apostle Paul spoke in light of that, he said God wanted a sanctuary so he could dwell in us. The best he could do in those days before the cross was a type of the cross and he could dwell among his people. But now on this side of the cross, it's possible through the cross that he can dwell in his people. The furniture in the tabernacle was laid out specifically like a cross by the pattern that God had given them. Anyone entering was required to enter at the foot of the cross. This would have been at the east side of the sanctuary. The tabernacle was also facing east, just like that huge cross laid out, made up of all the children of Israel. So anyone entering would have come in at the foot of the cross where the altar was. He would have had to leave his sacrifice there before moving towards the Holy of Holies, which is the glory of God. Likewise, in a type, we must lay everything down at the foot of the cross before we can go on to glory. We can't enter in. It's not even possible for us to come in to His presence without first coming to the base of the cross and laying down everything, laying down our lives so we can find it. The entry had four colors representing the four Gospels. Purple representing Matthew, which shows Jesus as the king. Red, which represents Mark, representing Jesus as the servant. White represents Luke, which was Jesus, the perfect man. And blue, representing John, which shows Jesus as the Son of God from heaven. There were three doors within the sanctuary, representing Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. The first door was wider than the others, and those became narrower. He wants us to come in. He wants as many as are called to come in. But once we come in, he begins to chasten us and grow us up, perfect us, represented in those doors. The altar of sacrifice was the first article, and it had a grate in it, which in the Hebrew is called netting. I believe that represents the catcher, the harvest, and his substitutory death at the cross. Because at that sacrifice, He laid down his life for us, but there's also that net. The kingdom of God is like a net. And that's where the harvest is caught, is at the foot of the cross. We've got to come to the cross or we can't enter in. Then next was the brazen laver. This was made from the mirrors which the women had donated. It was polished copper, which was the brightest materials they had in those days for mirrors. Again, we see a type and a shadow. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12 it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Then IV says, Now we see a poor reflection as in a mirror. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding, the NIV says, to reflect. As in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed or being changed into the image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We're looking, when we come to that brazen laver, that's Jesus. We need to wash our hands and our feet as we've learned that once we've been bathed once with Him, we don't need to be bathed again. When we've entered the priesthood as holy believers, we are washed in His blood from head to foot. Once is enough. That sacrifice never needs to be repeated as we've seen. However, daily, in our daily duties before the Lord, because we're still on this earth, we daily need to come to Him to be washed in that laver. As we come to that laver, what are we going to see? We're going to look into that and we're going to see the reflection of, of Christ in us. We're going to look into Him, and He's going to reflect back that which He sees of Himself in us. And we want to increase the Christ in us, so it can be manifested more and more. Christ in us is the hope of glory. The glory of God was given to the Son who gave it to us, and now it must be manifested from us and through us. As we daily come to that brazen laver, we see a reflection. In Malachi 3.3 3 it says, And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify. If you look into what it takes to purify silver, and a silversmith needs to take that silver and he needs to heat it up. But then when he begins to take the dross off, he needs to sit down so that he can see what he's doing. And he needs to take that dross that's on the top and skim it off carefully. And he may do it again and again and again. The Bible says that the word of God is like silver purified seven times, representing spiritual perfection. It's doubtful that any silversmith would really purify something or need to purify something seven times. But that's how pure the word is. But in order to purify that silver, he would need to sit down and then he would need to put heat to the silver and then begin to skim off the dross and take away those things. The way he would know when he is done is when he could see his own reflection in that silver. That's when the refiner would know that he was done. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? For the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Remember when He was in Gethsemane, He was under such pressure that He was sweating blood. It didn't seem to be too much joy. You see, the joy was not then, the joy was to follow. The perseverance builds character. The character gives hope. In Ephesians chapter 6, it gives us the pieces of the armor of God. And one of those is the helmet of salvation, which we are to take. Now that can't be speaking of the salvation we already have, because it doesn't say to have the helmet of salvation. It says to take the helmet of salvation. So it's got to be speaking of the parts of our salvation, which is still present and future. It's not speaking of, our past salvation in that we have received Jesus and we have eternal life, but our present salvation is through sanctification and our future salvation, which is the hope that we hold in our heart of the rewards and the joy that will follow, the rewards that come through obedience and endurance. That's what Jesus had, the hope of salvation, in that while He was enduring the cross He had the joy in his mind of that which was going to come, the glory which was going to come. He'd seen it on the mount. He'd even shown it to his apostles. But he had to hold on to it. It was so real to him, he could hold on to it. How real is the joy that will follow in your mind? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is why for a disciple, it's required that we would have our finances and our material things in balance with the Spirit. Because Jesus spent more time speaking to His disciples about stewardship of their finances and their material things than He did about prayer. Because where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. This is why the symbol of a believer is to have communion, in that when we come together as believers, the unity is through communion, one body. But the symbol of discipleship is that we have reciprocity that we freely receive and then freely give. It's that we're known as disciples because of our love for one another. It's reciprocity. Love doesn't require it, but unity demands it. How real is our hope? Depending on how real our hope is, is how strong we will stand on grace. Well, when He ascended up on high, He led captivity captive, He sat down at the right hand of God, and He gave gifts unto men, it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. And in verse 11 it says, And He he Himself gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping, which is the, the perfecting, the purifying of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect, to a purified man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, Jesus is the refiner's fire, and He ascended on high, sat down at the right hand of God, and set to the work of purifying us. And He, as the brazen laver, wants us to look into His face. And as we behold Him, we begin to see Him. How does he do that, seeing that we're here and he's at the right hand of God? He does it, as it says there, through apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. He chooses to manifest himself through the five ministries, and we then see him in one or more of those in the ministers of God. We see his gift manifested. We see his ministry manifested through someone whom he has given as a gift to the body of Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul said, imitate me, follow after me as I follow after Christ. Once we come to the cross, we lay down our burdens, we come into the net, so to speak. But if we want to proceed closer to God, closer to the glory, to come to the holiest of holies, we've got to come to the laver and we've got to choose to wash. If we'll wash and be washed by the washing of the water of the word, to get off the world that gets on us, we'll see in a mirror. It may be dimly now, but it will be face to face. And we look and we begin to see Christ through His ministries as He, the master purifier, is purifying us as silver. Next would come the holy place, with the outer courts on either side. Now, within the holy place was the table of the bread of the presence on the right side or the north. The golden lampstand was on the left or the south, and in between and forward was the altar of incense. Finally, behind the altar was the holiest of holies, wherein was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. To reach the Holy of Holies without completing the process was absolutely not possible. Also, if we're not willing to go through the process, we'll not be able to enter into His glory. We must complete the process. If we were to come into His presence without having gone through the process, it would kill us. He is just as interested in our process as He is in the product because He knows He's God. He doesn't change. So therefore, He must change us so that we can come into His presence. The question to ask is, when the day star arises each day, will He see your cross laid out? Will He be able to take you to glory and bear your burdens? Take up your cross as a fellow laborer with the Lord. Confess Him before men. Lose your life for His sake, and you will keep it for eternity. Now, the cross Jesus bore, none of us could have, and none of us can bear it. We each have our own. It's only a tiny portion of what He bore on our behalf. And yet, it's exactly what we need to carry in order for us to be converted, in order for our soul to be converted, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. If you'll look and study the four Gospels and the records in regarding to Jesus' crucifixion. Through scriptural progression, you'll see that it's very apparent that in three of the Gospels, it was Simon of Cyrene who carried the wooden cross for Jesus from the praetorium to the hill of Calvary. It's only in John's Gospel that it says, and he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out. However, his cross in John was our sins and our iniquities, not the wooden cross. So by looking at the four Gospels together, we'll understand very clearly that Jesus never touched that wooden cross until they laid him on it, because he'd already gone through so much, he couldn't even pick it up. And as soon as they left the praetorium, they grabbed a man, Simon of Cyrene, and he bore it all the way to Calvary. So when John wrote, and he left bearing his cross, we add that. And we say that, well, Jesus bore it for a while, and then Simon did, trying to fit the four Gospels. But it's very clear that the cross that he bore, no man could bear. No other man could have carried what Jesus was carrying, which was the sins of the world. In Isaiah 52, verse 14, It says, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form than the sons of men. If we could spend the time just to look at the sufferings of Christ and what he went through in those days preceding the cross. What he went through just in Gethsemane when he was alone was enough. But from the time that the soldiers took him away, he was tortured and beat and taken to Herod and then to Pilate. He was taken back and forth, scourged, beaten, had a crown of thorns placed on his head, had the robe put on him, left on for a while, taken off, torn off again, even after he'd been scourged. The pain he must have been in. It says his visage was marred more than any man. That means that when you looked at him as he was Being taken from the praetorium to Calvary, you couldn't even recognize that he was a human being from his shape. That's how beaten he was. In chapter 53, verse 1, it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness." And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, literally, that is, physical pains, and acquainted with grief, literally, that is, sicknesses. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised, and we did not esteem Him. Surely, He has borne our griefs, He's borne our sicknesses, and carried our sorrows, which is our pains. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Because he carried that cross, we have healing. Because he carried that cross, we have forgiveness of sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Just like the Passover lamb, he was prepared He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. His soul was an offering for our sin. You notice that when Isaiah prophesied this, he prophesied it as if it had already occurred, even though it was 600 years away. Because from God's perspective, it was already going to happen. It was set in stone already. And the prophet saw it looking back in a historical sense. Verse 11, And he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. When we have our eyes on what Jesus went through, we have to realize none of us could bear what he bore. And thank God none of us are called to, because the sacrifice was made once. It doesn't need to be made again. Those of us that want to be disciples, we have a cross to bear Sometimes it feels maybe too heavy for us to bear, but that's because we have unlinked ourselves from the Lord. When we keep our eyes on Him, and we daily come to the foot of the cross, throw another log on the fire of holiness, go to that brazen laver, understanding and remembering what He did for us. If we'll remember what He accomplished for us, it will be so much easier for us to extend a hand of help to someone else if we remember what he has forgiven us of it will be so much easier for us to forgive our brothers and our sisters when they transgress against us he carried the iniquity of everyone certainly we can be a burden bearer and help one another while jesus was on the cross he quoted scripture of the seven recorded statements of Jesus while he was on the cross, four are from Psalm 22, beginning with, My God, my God, and ending with, It is finished, which the psalm begins with that and ends with that. Let's read some of it. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, and throned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and were delivered. They trusted in you, and were not ashamed. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people." All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and they shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Prophecy fulfilled by those standing around the cross. Jesus could see his life unfolding through scripture and his death. And yet the spirit had explained to him types of the Old Testament that he knew He would get up in three days. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. I think that even when Jesus was on the cross and he said, I thirst, and they brought him something to drink and he turned it down. I believe he was just quoting scripture. He was just saying, I'm thirsty. He was in the middle of the psalm as he was quoting it. And they heard him say that, and they brought him something to drink, and he didn't accept it. But he knew he was inside of God's will even at that moment. For the dogs have surrounded me, the Gentiles. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, this was written hundreds of years before the cross was even invented as a means of capital punishment. When this was written, capital punishment in Israel was carried out with stones. Rome didn't exist. Historically, as we know, there had never been a cross used for crucifixion at this time, and yet it was prophesied that they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. <laughs> when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was just for a time. God is attracted to the word. And even though he felt forsaken, as he was burdened with all the iniquities and all the sins, the Father was there with him. Would have given him 72,000 angels if he'd asked, and yet the word of God was enough. He was faithful to the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Even while he was there, tortured, his visage to the point you couldn't even tell that he was a human being, he took strength in the word. He saw his life clearly in the word. In verse 31, it says, And they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Literally, it is finished. The last words that Jesus said on the cross was as he completed the psalm. What was finished? The father had finished the work through the son. He has done this. Even while Jesus was on the cross, he was giving glory to the Father for completing the work through his life. What was completed was the redemption of mankind. What was completed was the salvation. What was completed was the defeat of the enemy. What was given to us at the cross was victory. Now it's just for us to go and receive it and to be faithful for the joy that's set before us. The other three things that Jesus spoke of while he was on the cross, I think, also bear understanding. The three things he spoke of were to cover his family responsibility, to assure salvation of a sinner, and to secure the Father's forgiveness for all. I believe there's a lot that we can learn from how he bore his cross and stayed faithful even to the death of the cross. And yet, because he was faithful and obedient, God was able to get him up and to rise him up in three days in a glorious body and make him a life-giving spirit because he had something now that could be imparted to many. And the reason that God chose to raise him up was because that he chose to count the cost. Amen.